The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What if our lives after death are just as complex and soul-searching as our lives on Earth? What if we carry notions of religion and behavior with us as a true karmic burden and all the answers we receive at death are colored by our karmic assumptions as well as by the light. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's guest on the show is Kienda Bitru Valbracht, who had a near-death experience at birth, only to recall the details of it years later. Her involvement with death and afterlife studies was later heightened by the tragic loss of her infant son, Christian Alexander, to sudden infant death syndrome in 1982. Today, Kienda is a clinical hypnotherapist specializing in past life, death, and rebirth sessions. She is the author of the book Lucid Death, Conscious Journeys Beyond the Threshold, about which Amazon comments that the author communicates how life and death are seen as both universal and intimately personal, and she shares spiritual regressions that provide living images of life and death and karma and reincarnation, including the wisdom traditions of a variety of world religions. Lucid Death offers a spiritual truth or spiritual truths and tools for accomplishing life and death in noble, enlightened, and empowered ways. Kienda, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Kienda, perhaps you could begin by telling us about how you learned about your own NDE and how your interest in past life regressions evolved. Oh, yes, I definitely can. Um, well, as as you mentioned, my near-death experience happened at birth. Um, there were complications, and I was um, dying at the moment until a little nurse noticed that the things were not well. And um, I didn't actually realize what that what that had been and what it had meant until I was probably in my 40s and I was going through a session of peer counseling whereupon the whole birth experience and the journey into the spiritual world and then the return um, came very clear in my mind. I relived it at that, in that moment. But in realizing that, that made sense of certain aspects of my personality and myself, which had been present since my earliest childhood memories, which was that I could see the elementals and the little fairies and things like that. And many children do see them, but they don't usually remember, whereas I remembered, and it was somewhat ongoing. And... The, um, you know, my interest at a very early age in, in spirituality in northern Minnesota, that was only just a regular church, but asking the minister like serious questions as a, as a child, those kinds of things all began to make sense when I realized that my birth was complicated by death <laughs> in the same moment. Mm. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and when did you decide to pursue this as a as a career? Well, that actually happened later on when 
there was a period of time, and often people have this, where death comes in waves. My father, my brother, and then my infant son died. And when he died, um, I already had quite an extensive background in, oh, I would say, the esoteric and cosmic aspects of Christianity and uh, the um, fundamental... Um, what are the words here? (laughs) Uh, The the fundamental background of spiritual um, understandings throughout history, actually. And um, so that impelled me into actually wanting to seriously understand what death was and and where my son had gone and what was actually going on. Um, it had ha- it happened in, in 1982, and so I hadn't actually, um, in a sense, um, developed my own practices for exploration into the spiritual world. But um, there is a path in which um, one can actually safely navigate the spiritual world, the many different spiritual realms that there are, and... Um, and return with answers to questions. It's something that um, the ancient um, religions of all times and the ancient initiation um, processes of, say, the, all the ancient cultures that um, involved shamanism or involved the high priests that would journey into the spiritual world, um, that has that's always been a part of human evolution and development. Mm-hmm. But in the 1980s, there were no hierophants. There were no masters who would take a, a, a neophyte through those journeys. So I, in a way, had to take the basis of what I had learned in meditative practices, in prayer, in um, my reading of all the different world's religions and then develop something within myself that could actually allow me to explore the various realms. And once I had the discipline for that, I was able to be in communication with my son, so that he actually, I even in the um, acknowledgments in my book, I say that it's Christian Alexander, my son, who died of sin many years ago. I wrote the book, actually, it was my master's thesis, which I got in um, 2000, that he was actually the co-author of the book because he was a constant companion. And in the beginning, he would, in a sense, I could almost see as though he pulled aside the veil between the, the layers and the levels and the dimensions of the world so that I might then enter, communicate, ask, perceive, hear, and um, sense what was actually occurring in those worlds. Hmm. Now, <clears throat> do you think that Christian Alexander had a hand in leading you to uh, study Rudolf Steiner? That had already happened, but I do think that um, we work together in the spiritual world before we are all incarnated. We we always meet before we come down, and we make agreements, and we 
and we realize, oh, this will work for this lifetime. How about we try this or that or the other thing? And um, I think we all, um, it was definitely my destiny to find anthroposophy and the work of Rudolf Steiner in this lifetime, yes. And so he being such an intimate part of my life, he also had his hand in that, I'm sure. Mm. All my children did. They went to the Waldorf schools, and um, they, they've they had... Um, we I homeschooled a couple, two of my daughters, two of my three, and um, we did, um, you know, like the homeschooling lessons that we took on were just not the usual things, but also included like studying the series of books of the lives and master, you know, the lives and teaching of the masters of the Far East or um, the Great Initiates by Edouard Chouret or um, Rudolf Steiner is a little hard to tackle. Um, it has to be, it has to be worked through for quite a few years before one can actually even speak coherently about the work actually because it's rather vast. And, um, but my girls, have had a pretty good background in all of those kinds of things. And so they lucked nicely. They went from homeschool to community college on the dean's list. Um, human beings are wonderfully intelligent people, beings, if they are given the chance to really um, explore all aspects of that. At any rate. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, one of the uh, interesting things about Steiner, as far as I know, and I'm not that familiar with his work, but that he was trying to reconcile spirituality and science, two um, two instruments toward the pursuit of truth, which you know I personally believe have to ultimately come together, because if you're both, if you've got two different directions going toward truth, ultimately they're going to have to meet somewhere out there. <laughs> <laughs> true, and, true. And, and and was he was that? Am I right in saying that, he, that this was one of his interests? Yes, Steiner began. Um, he was a philosopher in the colleges, uh, the universities of the time in Vienna, and um, he also then, uh, in those days, science had not taken such a very um, hadn't gone so terribly deeply into just materialism and the, um, uh, how shall we say, the rejection of the spirit as antithetical. Um, in his day, which was the turn of the century, uh, the 1900s, he, uh, the education included things like philosophy. That was considered the, the science of the thinking mind. Mm-hmm. The science of thought, and so he was schooled in that uh, extensively, and so and the other aspects of science itself in the outer world were still much more, in a sense, mobile, because uh, he became the archivist of Johann Goethe, uh, Wolfgang von Goethe work, who was an early scientist. <laughs> he worked with the science of light, but the metamorphosis aspect and the spiritual interpenetration into the physical was still um, present in human thought at that time. 
And so Rudolf Steiner had what was the best scientific um, background, but also uh, philosophical and um, didactics and language and um, all those, um, the old classics as well. So Rudolf Steiner was an initiate, and an initiate is one who has received a training by which they can enter the spiritual world. As I said before, the ancient mysteries of all schools, the Samothrace and the Ephesian mysteries and the Mongolian mysteries and uh, South American mysteries, there were these mystery schools in the early, early times in which those human beings who had the potential were carefully schooled and disciplined in practices and tools that would lead them to be able to um, explore the spiritual worlds. By the time humanity had um, come into the 18th and the 19th centuries, there were that ability to easily perceive what was occurring in the spiritual world was beginning to dim as humanity was learning to think clearly and logically and sequentially so that science then would have its time in which it could, we could with our human mind penetrate into the workings and the depths of matter. But when that happened, we lost the ability to see so clearly into the spiritual world. Now, there's been a change since actually the time of Steiner. If you recall, back in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, there was this huge wave of spiritualism in America, and there was the Theosophical Society developed. And these were people who were now beginning to use their mind to penetrate into the spiritual world, whereas before it had just been the gift and the mind was uh, just um, put into physical materiality, actually. So, Rudolf Steiner was initiated in um, into the mysteries of the blending and balancing and the interpenetration of spirit and matter. And the way he worked in his lifetime was... As human, as other people, normal people approached, and they would have a question about what, well, say, just as an example, a number of farmers from, um, from Prussia, I believe it was, came to speak to Rudolf Steiner because they said, our, our earth is no longer yielding what it used to, and we, and it doesn't seem to have the vitality that it once had, and what can we do to re-enliven the earth herself? What can human beings do? And out of that, biodynamic farming practices were brought forth by Steiner in that he explored into the spiritual world what it would take to do that. And um, so uh, biodynamic is another step beyond organic, actually. Was Findhorn connected with Steiner thinking? Not as such, but the people were well aware of Steiner's work as well. Yes. Oh, I see. Now he was he he had some enemies, didn't he? He was attacked during his lifetime. What was he that was about? Actually, 
Well, now we must go into something that many people in this day and age are not happy to think of, and that is that there are actually forces of evil working in the world, not just human beings. Human beings are pawns in the game, actually. Human Humanity, human beings, if we think of all the other animals, or if we think of what the angels are, or we think of what the elementals are, they don't do the things that human beings are sometimes tempted to do. And normally, human beings are loving and kind and communal and we live in family groups and we nurture our young and we are creative and all of those things. Those are really more the heart of the human being, what humanity is. But then there are the serial killers and psychopaths and then there are, you know, those, I would have to say, when we look at our cultures and society, those who are in positions of power, who take advantage of that, those, um, I'm not really sure that those are human attributes. Are those perhaps human beings who have fallen prey to actually spiritual beings antithetical to human evolution? Well, I need to say at this point just one thing, and that is when I began to study death, and I took it on as my master's thesis, the first thing I realized was, I'm not going to understand death if I do not understand life. So I had to put together for myself a conceptual matrix of the evolution of humankind. And um, I I did a lot of reading in the Hindu world, in theosophy itself, in the Buddhist world, in Rosicrucianism, in Rudolf Steiner as one of the latest, um, the latest um, initiate of our times, and I put together. I did. I had to. Do, I had to take that on before I could even take on death, which was, <laughs> what is life all about? Why are we here? Where are we headed? And what are the forces that are working in opposition to the graceful fulfillment of our human destiny? And when you bring up this subject of how Rudolf Steiner himself was attacked, it was because the dark side or the the oppositional side would prefer that human beings not achieve their destiny to become as they are destined to become. And um, they also function in the evolution of humankind with a backward sort of um, hand in that in learning to stand and perceive and understand and discern and then choose our actions, uh, that is very helpful for human evolution. It's just that it is a very difficult, um, the difficult what shall we say, challenges. So yes, unfortunately, Rudolf Steiner moved into, people I know have heard of the Waldorf School, Waldorf Education. Yes, That arose because because Rudolf Steiner was asked to um, found a school um, for the workers of a particular factory. Um, And out of that came Waldorf Education. And there's well, there's anthroposophical medicine, which um, makes use of homeopathic um, uh, dilutions of different materials and different metals, 
which had not been used before in medicine. And um, let's see, there's a painting, there's a whole school of painting which has to do with laying down different veils of color. And there's a whole school of architecture. And so Rudolf Steiner was bringing the spiritual impulse into normal daily human life and the workings of our culture and our worlds and our societies and the forces that are in opposition to that, that would prefer to keep humanity down in one form, fascism or another, they were definitely antithetical to Rudolf Steiner's work. Now, one of the uh, interesting facets of your book, Lucid Death, is the fact that you <clears throat> you uh, go into the complexity, not only of life, but also of death. And it, it really brings into question the, let's, for a simple shorthand, call it a new age concept that when we cross over, the simple assumption is that we just go into the light and all our limited perceptions are answered and we have no more questions. And yet, I would say your book, your book indicates that personal beliefs and karma could play a more complex role in what happens next and what we experience when we die. And, uh, of course, Jesus said, my father's house has many mansions. So what, what accounts for all these differences? And is it, is it as complex on the other side as it is here? Yes, I believe that it is, actually. <laughs> and um, possibly even more so because there are many different dimensions that um, many more than are here on the physical plane. Well, and uh, so right now I can just run through very briefly. Um, the, the, one of the keys to understanding the conceptual matrix of life and death was the understanding that a human being is more than just the physical body. I mean, um, I can't see you, so I don't, I don't even see your physical body, but we are talking, and so there's another aspect of ourselves that can actually communicate. Um, you're thinking, obviously, because you're asking intelligent questions, and hopefully I'm answering in an intelligent manner. And um, so that's an aspect of every human being that exists but is not seen and is not on the physical plane. And then you're having emotions. Um, you might be excited about something or maybe something sad has happened in your life and you carry that with you even in this conversation. And I have my emotions. And so that's another aspect of the human being that cannot be seen but exists. And I think you and I are sharing little bits of that even in our conversation over, you know, thousands of miles away. And yes. you're alive, you're not just like a rock lying there, your body isn't just a physical thing that lies, you know, bound to the earth as all the minerals are. So there's something mm -hmm. that, that in you is living. So the way, the way that, um, this is using, um, an esoteric language, but it's also based on, uh, many of the ancient Hindu concepts and, um, and there are many new, uh, new things that are being dis discovered about these various aspects of the human being. But let me just put it into the language of the physical is the simple, um, Every part of the periodic table, you know, the oxygen, the carbon, the 
silica, all these different parts of that are all that make up the physical body of the earth, the stones and everything that is physical material. And human beings have their physical bodies. And the main law of the physical world is gravity. Therefore, all of those things, including our physical body, lie on the ground and don't simply get up and walk away, only downward. Mm. But how do, say, the plants bring the carbon and the silica and everything, how do the plants get those minerals up into their forms? They have an etheric body or a life body or a vital body. And the main law of that realm, which we cannot see, but we see symptoms of it, the main law of that realm is levity or uprisingness. Basically, it is the gravity from the sun which pulls upward. And the templates for all material existence is held in the etheric world. And it has a touch point on the physical with the DNA. So the DNA is one of those one of those um, physical material things that bridges the gap to the template of how the material will be created to be a human being or a plant or an animal. And humans, animals, and plants all have etheric bodies. The next higher uh, level of evolution uh, would be the animal. And they have a physical body, an etheric body, because they are upright. And they also have an emotional body or an astral body or a feeling body. Now, the main hallmark of that realm of existence is color. And it's feeling and emotion and expression. And animals, they all bond and they they do all those kinds of things. They, however, do not have individuality in the terms of they are a species. Each Each animal is a part of a species. When we come to a human being, we have physical bodies, etheric bodies, astral bodies, where we have our feelings and people can see auras, and that's an outer uh, expression of the emotional state of the individual. But we also have a higher member, which is as different from the astral body as the astral is from the etheric and the etheric from the physical, and that is, in the classical term, the ego I, the individual spark of consciousness that can say I, and that can conceptualize and extrapolate the higher principles out of physical, material, daily activities. We who, when we look at the stars, can see the worlds that are there. Um, so that's, those are the four parts, then, of the human being. Well, they, de- they have developed over long, long millennia of time. And one of the uh, interesting things I discovered then, so once I had this understanding of how the evolution of the human being had developed from um, ancient times, through varying stages of development of these varying aspects of ourselves and how the the ego eye 
the consciousness has also gone through long periods of development of mere sentience or intellectuality where the mind actually began to function and now into the higher mentation that we can do where we can um, we can imagine and visualize and spiritualizely um, journey into other worlds now we can do so consciously and we Kienda? can yes we are just about out of time for today <laughs> but oh, i'm I, I i want to uh extend an invitation to you to come back next week if that would be all right because we haven't even touched on past life regressions and right. i would really love to hear to hear your about your work in that so uh, perhaps we could uh, set up a, a time, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk after the after the show. But in the meantime, tell tell the folks how they can find your book, so that perhaps they'll they'll buy it and read it before uh, next week's show. Yes, all right, that would be wonderful. Yes, because then I can I can explain the resolution of life in death. Um, well, yes, my book can be uh, can be uh, found on. Uh, Amazon, actually. You could order it through Barnes & Noble. Uh, yes, Lucid Death, Conscious Journeys Beyond the Threshold. And my name, my pen name is Kienda Betrue, B-E-T-R-U-E, Betrue. Um, very, and I, I have a very website, yes. com. That's K-I-E. N D A B A L B R A C H T dot com. Kenda, thank you so much. And um we'll talk again next Monday. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. for the folks out there if they'd like to listen to this uh show again or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANS, check out their website, IANDS.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.